0: Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We will read verses 18 through 26. And I'll give you a minute to get that. I'll let you know in case there's any of you who don't know us. Um, uh, my wife's name is Siri, and she is expecting our ninth kid. I'm the pastor of Christ the King in Belfast. And the church is about eight years old. And um, Blake is uh, has been consistently in my life for many years. And our churches have done things together, including sort of forging the gospel lines of Maine. And I've been really thankful to be a part of that with you guys. And, and Blake and I are really blessed to see the way God has um, used it and is continuing to grow it throughout the state and bring unity around the gospel. We're really grateful for that. And um am thankful for your prayers, for our fellowship. We've seen God doing good things in the lives of the people in Belfast. Belfast is a really um, indifferent town towards the gospel, by and large. And yet God's making inroads, and we're seeing people grow in their faith, and people come to faith, and that's exciting, and we're grateful for that. Um, why don't we read this passage, and then I'll say a word of prayer. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting with verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool, yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would please anoint your word and have it go out with power. I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts. And I pray that we would hear from you and that we would be changed into the image of Jesus. I pray that you would be with us and moving amongst us and that you would have your own way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Firstly, it should be noted that this book, Ecclesiastes, is listed with wisdom literature. It's important to know the genre when you're studying the Bible, so that you know how to read. What is this book? What's it written to do? Who's it written to? But one of the things about wisdom literature is that you might be tempted to think that all you have to do is flip open the book of Ecclesiastes and sort of take your wisdom vitamin for the day the way you can in Proverbs. Proverbs. And anyone who's ever done that has learned the hard way that there's a danger in that approach with Ecclesiastes. You might end up with one of the more rugged bits that are hard for good church folk to swallow, like life is meaningless. Thankfully, God made beer. So enjoy it while you have it or spend what you have on yourself before your stupid kids wasted on their own entitlement. Amen. Let's let's start the day, right? we could go on and passages like these make a decent Christian squirm a bit in their seat. Should we suggest that our kids skip this book if they're reading the Bible chronologically? Should we skip it? Of course not. Right? But it's hard sometimes like other books that sort of don't fit the, the um, moral of the story sometimes sometimes. Way in which we approach Scripture, which may not be right most of the time, actually. There's a few preliminary things that maybe we could address. The interpretive phrase that runs throughout this book is under the sun, and that's kind of the running um, interpretive phrase that you would want to keep in mind. There's a reason it shows up all the time, it's a theme. So if it were a piece of classical music and we were listening to it, the repetition of a theme would tell us, oh, this is going to be an interpretive lens for how I'm supposed to understand the piece, especially when it comes back around. Oh, I remember this. We've heard this before. And that's how we answer the question about a classical piece. What's this song about? Right? And so we want to keep in mind when Scripture does this, there's something similar happening. Under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. This tells us that the book in its entirety is a philosophic attempt to analyze the world as if the world was all there was. And if you forget that, you can misinterpret what the Holy Spirit would have us glean from this text. One of the main themes is the world without the transcendent relationship with God. It's not one long funeral song. It's not the entire book doesn't just say, imagine there's no heaven. Um, imagine it's just us. Imagine we're just protoplasm. It's not doing that. It's, it's regularly interjecting, like you saw in our passage, and as we'll look at again more slowly. Well, thankfully, God interrupts this. Right. This is the word of God by the Holy Spirit, which is, uh, means that this book is about the gospel. This is actually going to find its fulfillment in Jesus. But it's a little counterintuitive, maybe, in the way it's setting it up. Imagine if I were to tell you that I'm going to quote Jesus right now from Luke 1521 b And I am. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Right? It'd be most helpful to know that Jesus happens to be telling the parable of the prodigal son, and he's citing the rebellious son. That, that's a lot of help. That's uh, encouraging, actually, right? Context is essential. I used to sit under a preacher who would criticize people who think that the Bible could be read without context. And they sit on the edge of the bed and say, show me where to go today, Holy Spirit. And they flip it open and they put their finger down and that's their vitamin for the day. And he used to joke that um, God would probably regularly have those people land on Judas went and hanged himself. And then he says, well, they don't like that one, so they slam the Bible open and open it again. And, and then they point their finger down and they go, and go thou and do likewise. And they're like, ah, forget it. David frames up a similar dilemma in some of the Psalms. If we were to just go to the Bible and be like, this is the word of God. Whatever I'm reading, however I read it, there should be a moral for me there. That would exclude most of the book of Job. Right? Right? David, sometimes if we're just going to land by pointing into the middle of a text, David often is screaming at God, What are you, sleeping? Do you care? Or are you awake and you just don't care? And those are hard pieces. That's by the Holy Spirit. This is um, an incarnational religion. Heaven is coming to earth, and heaven is not afraid to enter into the human experience, where humans regularly are asking these hard questions. Are you there? Do you actually love us? Are you paying attention? Do you care or are you awake and paying attention and not doing about anything about this on purpose? Because then I've got a bigger problem. I don't understand. David tossing back and forth on his bed, not finding resolution in earthly answers. And realizing it must be a higher answer than what I can find in earthly wisdom. It must be something greater than my perspective. God must be a greater judge than I would be. There's no sense of this otherwise. There's no way to reason my way out of this. This book isn't a collection of fortunes or maxims. It's an examination of the futility of Every aspect of life, whether in wealth or poverty, whether in discipline or license, if there is not a God who is greater than all of it. So with that, let's go to verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. There's a man who confesses that he can't stand getting up in the morning and going to work. Why? Because even if he works hard, even if he works hard at building something he believes in, there's no way to guard against it ending up in the hands of future generations who will undo what he's done. There's a sense of futility constantly looming. Pointless work, meaningless work, work that won't last is hard to get up in the morning and put our whole mind and being into. How could we say this in another way? Our man is mortal and he's not sovereign and that's depressing. Remember, this is a man who's analyzing the world if it were to be devoid of Jacob's ladder. If there was no kissing point where heaven actually meets earth, if there was no actually transcendence, if there was no imminence, if there was nothing greater that actually bothered to come down, if this was the closed set, if that's all there is, the existence he's describing is menial and futile. He spends his days working only to be railing against his own conscience, which informs him of the pointlessness of it all. What's a man like this to do? Well, he can do what many people do. He can just live for five o'clock. He can live for the weekend. He can live for vacation twice a year. The only problem with this is, which the author points out, It's still futility. It's still futility. And so he drags himself out of bed every morning because whatever the futility of having money is, at least it's better than the futility of not having it. And that's as good as it gets? Question mark. Verse 19. Who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool? This is the inheritor, the next generation. Who lived in your house before you? Who lived in your house before them, right? We start to lose track. What kind of man was your great-great-grandfather? I don't know. Who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity to work hard in order to build something, to spend one's whole life in order to build something, only to have it turned over to the next person who may or may not care. This is not morbid. It could be. It might be. This is the spoiler. Uh, There's a God on the throne. There's a God who's in Israel. There's a God who judges the earth. Um, your work is not in vain. We know where this is going. But we have to have the setup to understand oh, these are things we're tempted. These are things we're tempted with believing. This is the condition of the mindset of the world without God, if they're logical. The great Buddhist philosopher Alan Watts said there's only one question do I kill myself or not? Paul says. Prior to coming to Christ, you lived your life in slavery to the fear of death like everyone else. That's the Holy Spirit's sweeping scope of the condition of humanity. Whether they acknowledge it or not. And you have lots of people who are optimistic and chipper. Right? And they find lots of reasons to run around and be motivated to keep going And the realist recognizes the problem with it if there's no God. This is called vanity. Walt Kaiser and Glenn Fobert have done some interesting work on the usage of the word hebel. It's often translated in this book as vanity. Its first definition is vapor. Vapor or Mist. Or breath. And the key, says Kaiser, is to recognize that everything's transitory because of our lack of being able to map its quadrants. Without a transcendent and imminent God which who began all of this, without a transcendent and imminent God maintaining all this. And that God bringing all of this into some kind of conclusion, some kind of resolution, without that, our compasses are just spinning. Right? The Bible calls it being lost. You don't even know which way is up. You know this, tr- this is true if you've been converted at any point and recognized I, there was a way I used to think, and some of you were raised in godly homes, and from an early age you believed what you were told about the Word of God. Praise God for that. Some of you have been saved out of darkness, Paul says, out of death. You were darkness. And the things that we thought in rebellion that were good, now the things we thought were north are south. It's like the world is flipped. Because we have our bearings now. Because truth is spoken into the mist. And someone says, this way is up. Follow follow my voice. And now all of a sudden we're not lost. If there's no God to judge, there is no point to life. Tradition has it. Solomon's the author of the text. Solomon's not simply forcing a character to ask an existential question in some platonic fashion. This is a guy who's built an empire, who's regarded by the entire world as being one of the greatest living sages of all time, one of the greatest geopoliticians of all time. He had kids with close to at least a thousand women, and his dilemma is, out of this sea of progeny, only one can sit in my chair. Only one can take my place. That's a very personal dilemma. And sadly, we know that in Solomon's case, the foolishness of his boy, who takes the throne, Rehoboam, does not stand starkly against his father's pristine example and flawless work of faith. Rehoboam was a fool. But his dad claimed to be a believer, and his dad lived like the, a debauched pagan. It's not like we're shown a picture of Solomon sitting around the living room listening to Adventures in Odyssey with his kids every night, catechizing them every morning over steel cut oats. He was accruing girlfriends and joining them in worshiping demons. To suggest that there's not a connection here would be naive. Let's go to verse 20. So I turned about, turns around, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and great evil. Now, these verses are extremely insightful. Notice what happens. From whence cometh the despair? Our man went looking for it, he went hunting and found it. That's important. He turned about, he looked. He turned around, and looked until he found it, and then what did he do? He gave his heart over to it. David did this at times. In fact, it's in that context that David learns to preach the gospel to himself. Think of Psalm 42. He'd given his heart to despair, and the grave was swallowing more than he meant to give. So he learned to preach the gospel to his depressed self. Speaking of David still. Why are you so downcast, David? My soul, me, Garrett. What are you doing, Garrett? What are you doing, David? Why are you down there? Why are you so low, David? What's your problem? Oh, your countenance is fallen. Look on the Lord. Look around for where he is. That's the contrast between what our man in Ecclesiastes is looking for. I turned around until I found despair and then I gave my heart over to it. And David teaches us in contrast. Oh, your countenance has fallen. Look for the Lord. And let his stable countenance be the lifter of your countenance. And he learns that. Rejoice, the Bible says. What is that? That's a command. It's an imperative. Rejoice. Second person. You take joy. That's a commandment. It's not a suggestion. It's not a flowery, choral interjection. Now everyone, lift it up. He's saying, cut it out. Stop this, hunting for despair, and put your heart in the hands of the Lord, whose smile will lift your head. Right? Your countenance is falling. Look on the Lord. Take joy. Really? And, And we miss this sometimes. We know that repentance, changing of one's mind, of one's thoughts, is to take every thought captive and conform it to Christ Jesus, conform it to what is right. We know that that's a kind of discipline that the Christian has to practice. That's spiritual warfare. That's being a Christian, as being a disciple. Oh, I got to get control of my thought life. That's what rejoice is. Rejoice is a commandment to get a hold of your emotional life. Take your emotions in hand. Stop dishing them over to despair. Take your heart and give it to the Lord, who is the lifter of your countenance. Take joy. Control your emotions. We teach this to little kids so that they're not a basket case who don't know how to stand up when it's time to stop crying. Enough now. Enough. It's okay to be sad. But you did this already. Now it's time to practice self-control. It's okay to be excited, but you're losing your mind. You're being crazy. This is not how you respond. No more birthday cake if this is what we're going to do, right? Take this in hand and stop it. You pull this down now. And that's a healthy person. A healthy person lives in an arena where self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit can say, not just to my thoughts, but to my emotions, cut it out and I'll come back here. The Puritans recognize there are sometimes external issues when it comes to depression. I'm not I'm not neglecting that. Or even mania. I'm not saying that this is always just a be a good Christian kind of a context. But by and large, the middle of the road, a lot of our problems are we don't actually know how to be repentant with our emotions. We don't know how to practice self-control. In relation to the commandment. To actually give our hearts over to actually joy in the Lord. And we're not practicing that. And so it's good to take control of your thought life. And to be like oh I'm a gossip. I've got to stop thinking this way. And letting my mouth follow. Oh I'm, I'm lusting. I've got to stop thinking on this. I've got to have control up here. Good. But this would also apply to the emotional realm. When God commands his people to rejoice in him. He's commanding this of creatures that already know how to go hunting for a reason to be depressed and a reason to complain. They already know how to go hunting for something ungodly, emotional, or thought-based into whose hands they'd like to commit their hearts. We already know how to give our hearts over. And the Lord commands us to give them over to him. It's helpful to know that one of the words for repentance, I learned this when I was preaching through Matthew. I'd never heard this before in my life, but I came across the English translation repentance in one of the things, and I said, oh, that's interesting. Metanoia, change of thoughts, change of thinking, turn about, face, all that. We, I knew that, and it wasn't metanoia. It was metamelomai. And I was like, what is that? It means a change of one's emotions. It's translated repentance. But it means to actually do the same thing you would do with your thoughts, but you do it with your emotions. Okay? This is, how you, this is how we grow in the Lord and we become strengthened. This is how we take a weak conscience and become a strong conscience. We do that with knowledge, not empty knowledge that puffs up, but true knowledge that edifies. So it's bigger with substance from truly applying knowledge in love. How do I do that? So if I believe I'm a loser... If I go, my, my thought life all day long is, I'm a piece of junk, I'm a piece of junk, I'm a loser, I'm a loser. You don't answer that by self-esteem books written by pagans that will just pollute the well more. Because what you're going to do is, no, I'm perfect the way I am, and I don't need to change at all, and the world should consider me gold. And you're missing the entire doctrine of scripture on when it comes to who we are. We are damned and disparaged apart from Christ, who places value on us by giving us value. And that's not even to mention the Imago Dei, the image of God, which every human being has, which gives value in the context of someone who's a complete rebel. Not perfect the way they are. This isn't Mary Poppins. This is someone who, we are people who need to have our identity and our knowledge of self based on Scripture. And Scripture tells us What the truth is. God used the blood of his son to purchase me. The Holy Spirit does not condemn those who are not condemned. And so if I'm living in condemnation, I'm believing lies. And so I apply the truth and I learn to say not because of me, not because my smile just lights up the room, but because Jesus Christ poured his blood out for me because I'm made in the image of God. Those are the true things. I have value, you're a liar, get away from me. And we practice this. And over time, our conscience builds up muscle as we believe the truth and as our knowledge expands. And that's how we grow. It's the same thing with emotions. It's the same thing with emotions. And sometimes there are other factors that need to be addressed. Sometimes pastorally, sometimes medically. But those are really more on the fringe The writer of Ecclesiastes, like many people, goes looking for despair and then he gives his heart over to it. And conversely, God commands his people go looking for him. And we shove our hearts into the joy of him being a God who is not far away. I found him. He's a God who is to be found. He's a God who reciprocates. He's promised this and he can't lie. Go looking for me and I'll go looking for you. Draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. Yet he can't lie. Not he won't lie. He can't lie. Part of the problem we have to remember is the frustration the materialist experiences when faced with their own mortality. And Christians are tempted with this. We're tempted with this. Choosing to dwell lack of sovereignty. You're not sovereign. Choosing to dwell on the fact that you're not sovereign will always produce anguish. There are a number of factors that feed into this, even for Christians. For men, it's pornography. It's money. Things that tempt us into believing, that's right, I'm I'm at the center and everyone is here to wait on me. Everyone desperately just wants me to be at the center of the world. They just... I walk into a room and I can buy what I want. I, I, I log on to a chat room and I'm God. Those are lies. But there are a number of other factors that feed into the temptation for us to believe. The anger and frustration that manifests from us often is a direct result of the futility of recognizing, I'm not controlling the world. This is not going the way I think it should go. Even our anger at God. What is wrong? Well, I, I, we're like a bunch of prosperity gospel people. I did everything right. Why aren't you doing your job? Just dish it out. I'm doing everything right. It's not working. What is that? That's the confession of someone who believes themselves to be sovereign. Or God to be some sort of ATM machine. Choosing to dwell on your own lack of sovereignty will always produce anguish. Choosing to rest in God's sovereignty, we're told over and over, will produce hope and peace. Thank God he has this, because I don't. That's not hopelessness. If a believer comes to to the place where they recognize, it seems like everything is running over the cliff. I tried to stop it and I can't stop it. If a believer stops there and throws their hands up and says, forget it. That is not the same thing as a believer who realizes everything's going over the cliff and I can't stop it. God, you've got this. You might look at two shots side by side and they both might look like somebody standing there watching the world go to hell in a a handbasket. And two shots of somebody throwing their hands up. But they can be two completely different things. To despair is not the same thing as to abandon the illusion of our own sovereignty and trust in God's. But both scenarios will require us to say, I don't have this. I don't have this. One of the traditional approaches to Ecclesiastes has been to say that Ecclesiastes asks all the questions that the rest of Scripture answers. In verse 20, we might recognize the implicit presence of the question. Then what's a person to do with morbid introspection? What's a person to do with morbid introspection? To which the rest of the Scripture answers resoundingly, Worship the Lord. Trust in God. Worship the Lord. Trust in God. Introspection is a poisoned well. It's the problem with getting advice from pagans is introspection is masked as being deep and as being mystic. I spend a lot of time looking inward. And the Bible, I mean, there's a reason we link morbidity with introspection. It's a path of death. It's not the same thing as being meditative. It's not the same thing. If there's a God on the throne, and there is, then the object of our pondering, of our meditation, should not be looking inward for the answer. It should be looking to the revealed will of God in what he has said. That's why Hebrews erupts into worship. Praise the Lord, he bothered to reveal himself. Because we would be totally, totally abandoned in the fog. But he's spoken. He said what he thinks about a million things. Everything sufficiently that we would need in this life. Introspection is a poisoned well. From the blurry reflection of the self to the toxic desire for an immortality that's disconnected from a sovereign God, there's no life to be found there. Worship, on the other hand, worship heals the deranged mind of the narcissist. Worship heals the deranged mind of the narcissist. Worship puts the disordered room back into place. God's on the throne North is north. Nothing's outside of his control. Here are the parameters. I'm in submission to him as a creature. I know who I am. There is me. There is God. There is the edges. This is what he has defined as reality, as truth of his word. I'm in submission to him as a creature and I'll find my joy and peace in proclaiming what's true about only him this is not hopeless praise god that there is a judge of the earth praise god that there is a revealed word of god verse 22 what has a man from all the toil and striving of his of heart with which he toils beneath the sun the gospel answers resoundingly with solomon Nothing, nothing, if your striving is limited to an existence contextualized solely by physical experience, then your striving is in vain. If there's no God, you guys are above everyone else in this state to be pitied because you're not only wasting your time, you're deluded and you're a bad example of the human species. That's the scripture. Not, well, it's a tolerable way to spend your life. No, you're leading people astray. They could actually be enjoying themselves if this is all there is. Paul says, if this is all there is, drinks on me. You're not wasting your time. You're, you're distracting people from the only chance of being able to have a minute of rest that they have available to them by lying to them about foregoing immediate gratification. You're not to be trusted, let alone followed, if this is all there is. Be discouraged is the message, if this is all there is. Be very discouraged. More money will never cure your discouragement over the lack of it it will only turn what you have into dust in your mouth but the gospel answers this question with correctly contextualized hope 1 Corinthians 15:58 therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast be immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing in the lord your labor is not in vain it's not in vain isn't that like a breath of Isn't that just like somebody opened the window all of a sudden, right? That's so good. That's redemptive. That's incarnation. That goes right into the workplace. This is not pointless. This is not hopeless. This is infused with meaning. Here we see the work of the Spirit in Ecclesiastes. It's like a perfectly timed volleyball team. And the oft misunderstood work of Ecclesiastes is the setup for the gospel of Jesus Christ to deliver the spike. It's not striving that's the problem. It's not your day job that's the problem. It's not having money or not having money. The problem is a heart that is set on things of earth. The things under the sun. And when we do that, we can't reach the heavenly things. And the closed system of earthly things is a death maze. But when we desire kingdom things, heavenly things, the things of the Lord, it doesn't make us Gnostics who are like, oh, I love the spirit realm. I'm just so excited about that. Can't wait to get rid of the meat prison. That's going to be so awesome out there in the spirit realm. My mind is set on heavenly things. It doesn't do that. It's condemned in scripture. It does this. When you put your mind on heavenly things, it all of a sudden back floods the room with heavenly light. So now heaven comes to earth. We we prayed that just a few minutes ago. Don't take care, God. Bring your stuff here. He's moving into your apartment. You're not going into some outer space planet. He's moving here. We're asking him in the Lord's Prayer, God, bring your stuff here. Bring your record collection into my apartment. Bring your stuff. That's what we're asking him, not rhetorically, not putily. It back floods the material with heavenly light so that now, A person can get up every day for the rest of their lives and scrub pots at a restaurant for other people to eat food of that they'll never be able to afford to buy themselves. And it is packed with meaning and purpose, packed with meaning and purpose. Somebody can actually experience what in another context is going to be futile, a broken marriage that never turns into some sort of courageous movie by the hour and a half time limit. Like all of a sudden it wraps up and everything's beautiful and perfect. And somebody's going to have marriages that are going to be hard for 40, 50 years. And you're going to die. And you're going to be tempted to kind of either be relieved in some ways and fight against that. And so, and you're going to be real Christians. The struggle gets redeemed. Meaning back floods into the room. Into things that without the gospel would be meaningless. But this is the claim. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. This changes everything. And then look at the answers that Jesus elicits to all these people in different contexts. Stay here and love your neighbors. Give them their money back. Go back to your family and tell them. Start in Jerusalem and move out. But let everybody know. Not that there's a better life waiting somewhere else out there. Jesus, like, in Mark, Jesus, like, throws that in as extra. Oh, yeah, and in the end, uh, in the age to come, eternal life. But that's like the addendum. That's like the thing at the end of the phone contract. The amazing, profound thing is that if the gospel has moved into your life, you're a new creature. You're a creature. But creation is new. It's new creation. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on earth. Colossians 3, 2. We're not Gnostics. Not at all. To dwell upon the things of the kingdom of God is the only way to to correctly engage the things of earth. The whole world is in danger of becoming a museum of idols otherwise. We'll be surrounded by failed gods if the one true God does not sustain our perspective. There is no hope outside the gospel, but the gospel is hope yielding fruit tree. Constantly in season. Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest This also is vanity. Again, we only need to go back as far as this guy's dad, David, tossing back and forth on his bed, unable to sleep. His heart is sorrowful. His heart is vexed. His kingdom is slipping away from him. Members of his own household, his circle of friends have lifted up their heels against him. When does David find rest? How does he fall asleep? In the body, how does he respond as a believer? Two bottles of wine and a Netflix binge? How does he cope? How does he deal with being a, a, a physical creature experiencing despair in the body? Is a heavenly answer, not a heavenly answer, so that I can be like, well, someday I'll be out of the body and it'll be in heaven and that'll be great then, and that, hopefully that'll get me through the night. It it comes into the flesh. It's incarnation. It's incarnation. This is more glorious. You read Athanasius on the Incarnation. I'll paraphrase him, but he's like, this is way greater than the other alternative, the Gnostic alternative. I'm paraphrasing Athanasius very loosely. I hope Aaron doesn't quote me on this. I was was talking to my kids, right? One time, these kids I was tutoring. And they're like, imagine if we could do Jedi mind tricks and imagine... If we could be like, I'm just going to think it, and I didn't need to use anything, but it would just be like, and then the remote floats across the room into my hand. And everyone grows up kind of thinking, wouldn't that be awesome? And Athanasius is like, you guys are idiots. What's amazing is that God designed this mud this mud vessel made out of meat. To have a will and a spirit inside it that tells parts of the mud, stand up, mud, stand up, meat. Now move across the room like this and grab the remote and pull it back. And it's all being done by the spirit. That's amazing. That's more glorious. Incarnation is more glorious. And this is what the Christian gets to bring into the workplace. Not that someday you'll get to clock out and go lay down and be at rest in the sunshine of heaven and not that this will all be better. You just, everything gets ironed out and fixed in the flesh and there's no more bumps. There's no more bruises once you accept Jesus. But that purpose and meaning and God himself. Actually fellowship with creatures made of meat. Spirit indwelt creatures. is far more glorious. And David realizes this. David, David recognizes You're not sleeping. You're just not like me, but you're trustworthy and good. And you haven't finished yet. Okay, I can go to bed. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. So here the truth is affirmed that the God of the Bible is not the God of the Gnostics who rejected the material as being inferior to the spirit. God definitely defines a hierarchy of needs, but the God of the Bible is incarnational, which means the real miracle is the physical stuff can be used spiritually. That's the real miracle. In fact, a connection is made that when we consume nutrients in order to have energy to keep going, God has designed that it be done as a form of pleasure and reward. He didn't have to make it enjoyable to eat. That's awesome. Why? He wanted us to find pleasure and enjoyment in the act of building up nutrient atoms so that we can keep going. He, he wanted pleasure in it. So that we can be like, this is not utilitarian. This is also glorious. It's also glorious. We we take in nutrients so that I can keep going, so that I can push something heavy or, or grab a kid out of the road or do whatever we're going to do with the energy. But you get to smell it on its way to the table. He's good to us over and over and over. God designed this, everyone, everyone, even rebels and pagans get this, even though they're not saying thank you. Everyone gets this. Interestingly, one of the first Jacob's Ladder moments that the writer points out in which transcendence and imminence, meat, is in eating and drinking. And if you know this, the meal is intensified because the trick with all receiving, according to God, is that it be done in thankfulness. If you receive it with a spirit of thankfulness, knowing that all good things come from God, then your experience of reception is glorified. And then you can fill in the blanks. Doesn't matter if it's Wendy's or if it's Primo, it doesn't matter. You can actually have a glorified eating event by being thankful to God in the reception. Last verse, 26, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This is vanity and striving after the wind. For whom is the vanity? For whom is it pointless and without order, without sense, only for those who have no union with the Lord? And you get to be saved from this if you believe the gospel. You get to bring life into the workplace and into your into your family reunions and Christmas time around people who reject the gospel at present. You get to bring an offer of life to them. Not life later, life now, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, knowing the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's eternal life. That's life abundantly, life overflowing, stacked, pressed down, overflowing. Now, now, and you get to keep it. Whoever believes in me, even though his body will die, yet he will keep living life starting now. So the mystery of the book begins to fade Two people being considered now are not equally doomed, though they might work for the same restaurant. The latter one strives only to give to the former. The latter has even what he has taken away. And given to someone else, the former is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. The latter is the unbeliever and the former is the believer. Jesus addresses an issue related to this in Luke 7 when interacting with John the Baptist's disciples. He says, John is the greatest man born of woman, and yet the least in the kingdom is greater than him. To use the lexicon of Ecclesiastes, we'd say that the material is all there If it's only in the material, then it's just a coin toss. But the kingdom of God invades the material, and now you have two different encounters. Same kind of material setup, maybe, but one is doomed and one is glorified. John fasted all the time. John didn't even drink alcohol, but he wasn't physical enough for his critics. Jesus feasted. He brought a thousand bottles of wine to one wedding, but he was too physical. Nothing's going to satisfy the material if that's all there is. There is no way to do only the material in a way that will satisfy. There is no way to do it. Solomon is the wisest man on earth, but the least in the kingdom is greater than him. What Jesus Christ did in becoming a human being was not only to condescend to our level, but he changed everything. Everything. There's a new heavens and a new earth that have already started because of the incarnation. God the Maker became a part of the created order. And since the ascension, there's a human being sitting on the throne of God. That is a new order. This changes everything for us. There's no panic for the believer. Our work is glorified if done to the Lord. Striving, laboring, hard things. Things that might not get fixed right away. Jobs that would seem meaningless to a pagan. I'm a bean counter. I move numbers on the screen. I work at the landfill. Things I've heard people say, there's no point in my job. It's futile. It's empty. Only if there's no God. God is in control. But not only that, God is being glorified in the created order. in all that is unfolding around us, the plot Is not about us. And when we realize that, we can jump into the story like never before. God is to be glorified in your work, in your striving, in your suffering, in your sickness. Read James. In your broken marriage, not just focus on the family model marriage. God is to be glorified. In your victory, in your loss, in your mourning, in your happiness, he's given you the interpretive lens of redemption. Praise him and don't let your heart fall into unbelief. In the Lord, none of your striving is in vain. None of it. Amen? Let's pray. And then Aaron will come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for your word. And we praise you for who you are and all that you've given us in Jesus Christ. All is ours. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.